for Palm Sunday, we're going to look at uh, John chapter 12, and we'll read verses 12 through 16. John 12, 12 to 16. Palm Sunday, also known as the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And this event took place on the Sunday uh, before Good Friday and then Easter, the resurrection of Christ, which took place just a week later. So this is just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ. John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we consider the events of this Palm Sunday, we ask that You would open our eyes to see the significance of these events and to see their relevance for today. Father, we want to see our Savior Jesus Christ in all His glory. We want to understand everything about Him. We want to know who He is. We want to understand His titles and His offices and how He is the fulfillment of all Scripture. So, Father, give us understanding so that we can rejoice in the manifold blessings that are ours in Him. In whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This last week, as I was sitting in the doctor's office, uh, eagerly waiting for my back to be readjusted and straightened out, um, I was listening uh, to a conversation a few ladies were having, and one of the ladies said to her mother, uh, when is Easter? And she said, Easter is in two weeks. And then she said, oh, so this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And I thought, oh, that's actually quite impressive. Um, I wonder how many Christians know that this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And then I thought they're probably a part of a mainline denomination, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, uh, Congregational, uh, because those mainline churches tend to celebrate Palm Sunday. Uh, many evangelical churches, for whatever reason, uh, don't celebrate Palm Sunday. They might celebrate Christmas, Easter, but... Palm Sunday tends to get overlooked, uh, which is a shame because I think it's an awesome holiday. Um, however, even if you grew up in a church that celebrated Palm Sunday, if you've been in this church for a while, we celebrate it every year, I wonder if you really have a handle on the significance of Palm Sunday. Let's think about that for a moment. So, for example, if tomorrow you talk to one of your non-Christian co-workers and they say, did you go to church Sunday? And you say, yeah, I went to church last Sunday. Um, it was Palm Sunday. And they ask you, Palm Sunday? Yeah, I think I've heard of that. What, 
What's Palm Sunday all about? Would you be able to answer their question in a single sentence? Well, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate fill in the blank. Would you be able to fill in the blank? Could you do it? If some of you are getting a little nervous, okay, let me let you off the hook and say it's not as easy as you might think. Uh, and that's because much of the meaning of Palm Sunday is shrouded in mysterious symbols, sayings, and scriptures. We have mysterious symbols, sayings, and scriptures. And our task this morning is to demystify the meaning of Palm Sunday by examining these symbols, sayings, and scriptures. So we want to talk about the purpose of waving palm branches. Uh, what did that mean? And we want to look at the definition of the Hebrew word Hosanna. Hosanna. What, what does that mean? And then we want to look at the interpretation of Zechariah 9.9 and ask, what does that mean? When Jesus rode on a donkey fulfilling that Scripture, uh, what did that mean? And I think once we do that, we'll have a fairly good grasp of what's taking place on Palm Sunday so that you can provide a good, biblical, concise answer to your coworker or neighbor or son or daughter. So with that in mind, um, let's begin with uh, the first mysterious symbol, and that's that of the palm branches. Look at John 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him. Now, before we talk about the meaning of the palm branches, um, notice that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Why is Jesus coming to Jerusalem? To be crucified. I hope you at least understand that. He told His disciples on at least three separate occasions in very plain language why they were going up to Jerusalem. And He would say something like, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, He's going to rise from the dead. And the disciples responded by saying, Huh? Uh, they didn't get it. But I hope we get it. 2,000 years later, He's going up to Jerusalem to fulfill the purpose of the Father, which is to die on the cross. So that's important to keep in the back of our minds or to keep in the front of your minds, if you like. Now, verse 12 says that when they went out to greet Jesus, uh, they, grand, they grabbed excuse me, palm branches, which were available because of all the palm trees. So they would go out and they would grab palm branches and they grabbed those so that they could greet Jesus waving palm branches. What is the significance of that? The significance is not they needed shade. Uh, the significance is not that Jesus was probably hot so they wanted to cool Him off. Okay, Although maybe they did that. The significance is much deeper 
than mats. And the meaning of palm branches has a very important and significant background to it. You need a little history here. I'll give it to you just briefly. One commentator said, It is recorded that when Simon the Maccabee drove Gentiles out from the citadel of Jerusalem, let me, let me stop right there for a moment before I go on. Uh, Simon the Maccabees uh, led the armies of the Jews. He drove out um, the Gentiles who had come into Jerusalem. And I won't give you all the details, but he had victory over the Gentiles. Very significant defeats. And actually, there's a holiday celebrated by the Jews even to this day celebrating this victory. Does anybody know what that holiday is? Hanukkah. Yeah, Hanukkah is the celebration of this great victory uh, led by military leader Simon of Maccabee. So when he drove out the Gentiles of Jerusalem, won this great victory, uh, he came back in triumph celebrating this great victory over the enemies. And as he came back making his entrance, uh, they were singing praises to him and they were waving palm branches to celebrate Israel's final riddance of a formidable foe. So the waving of palm branches was a celebration of victory over Israel's enemies. There's much more I could say about this, but this was very common in Israel. So if you were waving palm branches, they understood the significance of that. Perhaps the closest thing we have to that in America would be the waving of the American flag after a victory saying, we have triumph. We're strong. Don't mess with us. Okay, that's what was meant by the waving of palm branches. But notice that they're waving the palm branches before any victory takes place. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. What are the Jews expecting? Jesus is going to be the new Simon of Maccabee. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to wipe out the Romans. And finally, we're going to be free from our enemy, and we could enjoy the freedom that we want. So they waved the palm branches as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, basically prophesying He's going to win the victory. It's going to be great. Let's just begin the celebration right now and wave the palm branches. So that's the significance of the palm branches in anticipation and hope of Jesus' victory over the Romans. Were they right? in what they were expecting. <laughs> they were half right and half wrong. Yes, Jesus is coming as the conquering leader, but no, He's not going to overthrow the Romans. He is going to defeat Israel's greatest enemies, sin and Satan. So that's the meaning of the palm branches, recognition of victory over enemies. Number two, we have a mysterious saying, at least it's mysterious to us, wasn't to the Jews of the first day, but they go out to greet Jesus. They're waving their palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna! 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 Hosanna in the highest! I did that because my wife would be amazed that I would sing in front of a congregation. <laughs> you just sang that a little while ago. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
What were you singing? What does that mean? At least one person knows. Save us now. Exactly. That's what they were saying. Waving their palm branches. And they were saying to Jesus, as He comes into Jerusalem, they were saying, Save us now, Jesus. That's what they were asking for. Salvation or deliverance from their enemies. Uh, The word Hosanna is a transliteration. There's a big word. Transliteration. Five syllables. Anybody know what a transliteration is? Let me give you an example. It's a word from another language which when it comes into another language, um, it has the same pronunciation. For example, this is one you know. Baptizo in the Greek is what in English? Baptism. We don't translate it. It literally means to immerse or dunk, but we just say baptism. That's a transliteration. So the Hebrew word is Hosanna. And we're going to turn to Psalm 118 in a minute. We'll see that it's translated there. Save me. But here, it's a transliteration. It's not interpreted. It's just a transliteration. And they just say the Hebrew. Hosanna. And it's okay for them because they knew what it meant. But we say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then when I ask you, what does it mean? You go, ah, scratch your head. I don't know. Good question. We're crying out to God for salvation. That's the significance of it. And then they go on and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And who is this one who comes in the name of the Lord? Even the King of Israel. And this is a quote from Psalm 118, which means they recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. So I'd like you to turn to that psalm. Psalm 118, and they, they would recite this psalm every year during the Passover feast as they came into Jerusalem. But this year, they recited the psalm understanding that in their lifetime, it was being fulfilled. At least many in the crowd believed it. That Jesus was the one that this psalm had talked about and He had finally come. And it's a fascinating psalm. Um, We're not going to go through the whole thing, but I do want to point out a few verses because they're fascinating. Psalm 118, let's begin at verse 14. The Lord, Hebrew Yahweh, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So Yahweh, Israel's God, has become their salvation. Glad songs of salvation. This is about salvation. Are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. The right hand of Yahweh exalts. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. You know what that's a prophecy of? If you thought about it a little bit, I bet you could figure it out. That's a prophecy of the resurrection. This is Jesus saying, I shall not die ultimately, but I shall live. And then it goes on and and recounts the deeds of Yahweh. Yahweh has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Okay, This, This is Jesus talking, and He's saying, Yahweh, the Father, He's disciplined Him by being punished for our sins. But then again, again, notice, 
but He has not given me over to death ultimately. He will die, but His body will not see corruption because it will be raised from the grave. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank You that You have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What, can you see the picture here? We have a mini parable. See the picture? There's, there's a stone that was necessary for the building of this building, but the builders, they rejected it. But now it's become the cornerstone, the, the chief stone, the foundational stone, the most important stone out of all the stones in the building. Does that verse sound familiar? I hope this verse sounds familiar. Jesus referred to this when He talked to the religious leaders. They were the ones who were supposed to be building God's house. They rejected Jesus. And yet the Father said, you rejected Him, but I'm going to take Him. He's going to become the chief stone of a new temple that we are all a part of. We are stones in the temple. Did you know that? We are living stones in God's temple. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25, put on your Hebrew glasses, Hosanna. Here it's translated, save us. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. Verse 25 is translated this way in the King James. Save now, we beseech Thee, O Lord. So, save us now, O Lord. And then 26, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is the one that comes in the name of the Lord? We know the answer. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is Jesus, the King. And we see that interpretation back in John. Notice what the people said in verse 13. Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the Jews understood the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the King of Israel. And when He comes, He will bring us salvation. And if they could have read Psalm 118 clearly, they would have seen, but this salvation will not occur until He dies and then rises again from the dead. That part, they, they couldn't comprehend. They couldn't see that at all. But now a little later, they say hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can see it. So they're seeing Jesus as the one who's going to bring salvation. They're announcing that. And again, we have to ask, were they right? Were they right? And again, we're, we're torn because once again, they were, they were half right and half wrong. Yes, he, he was the coming King. He's the one that's bringing salvation, but not the salvation that they think. Not the deliverance that they think. They're looking for deliverance from their physical enemies. Jesus is bringing a spiritual salvation. They don't understand that there's something more significant that they have to be saved from. They have to be saved from the wrath of God. Not the wrath of Rome. That's very important. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote a very very good little book called Saved From What? Saved From What? And uh, the origin of this book is Sproul gave a message 
to a group of Christian, a prominent group of Christians, talking about what salvation is from. And, and he mentioned that when he first gave this message, he was a little apologetic. He said, I know this is really basic and it almost insults your, your intel, intelligence, but we need to be real clear about what salvation is for. When, when someone says, are you saved? Uh, we need to know, saved from what? We need to have a very clear answer to that. And, and here's the three points of the book. They're found right in the uh, table of contents. Saved from what? And the answer is we are saved from the wrath of God, God's punishment of sin, ultimately in hell. And then he says, saved by what? Saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, His perfect life and His atoning death on the cross. And then he asks the question, saved for what? Saved for God's glory so that we could thank Him and praise Him for all that He has done for us. And he said, what is fascinating about the message that he gave that he thought would be insulting is how many people thanked Him for making the Gospel message so clear because they didn't understand it. And I said this before and I'll say this again. You can never be too clear about the Gospel. And I never tire of repeating the Gospel again and again and again, just using different words, different phrases, different illustrations, because we can never be too clear. It can never be too precise in our minds what is salvation? What is the Gospel? What are we saved from? What are we saved by? What are we saved for? We want that to be very clear in our minds. And the Jews, first century, they didn't understand their need of salvation from their sins and from the wrath of God. So we looked at the mysterious symbol, the mysterious saying, now mysterious Scripture, Zechariah 9.9. 9. So in verse 13, they go out to meet Him with palm branches. They say, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found the young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, notice the connection between 13 and 14. I think it's very important. Uh, they're waving their palm branches, as we said, in recognition that he's, he's the conquering leader that's coming. Uh, they're singing that he's, that he's the king. He's going to bring deliverance. And in response to that, Jesus, we're told, found a donkey and he sat on it. That's very deliberate. Why, do, why does he do that? He wants to make it very clear what kind of king he is. So this is Jesus' way of saying, you're right, I am the king, but you don't understand what kind of a king I am. So I'm going to help you by sitting on a donkey. Which means the Jews have to harmonize what's said in Psalm 118 with Zechariah 9.9. Okay? It's so important when it comes to theology, when you're putting together theology around any subject, that you harmonize passages. Look at a passage over here and then a passage over here. 
and they have to harmonize. If they don't harmonize, if they seem opposed to each other, then you have to say, there's something I'm not understanding. And Jesus is saying, basically, you need to understand Zechariah 9.9 if you're going to understand what kind of king I am as I ride into Jerusalem. Because you're wrong with what kind of king I am. I'm not a king coming to wage war. I'm a king coming to wage peace. You know what would have happened if Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a war horse? Oh, it, it would have been riotous like you never would have believed. They were waiting for Him to lead armies, come into Jerusalem, conquer Rome. If Jesus came on a white war horse and He said, let's go, I mean, everybody would have been up in arms. It would have been a riot like you can't imagine. Two million people. Even all these different demonstrations you see on the news. You know, all these riots in the streets. You haven't seen a crowd of two million people riots in the streets. So anything you've seen on TV that's turmoil and nations that are protesting, you know, against their dictators or whatnot, not even close to what would have happened. Jesus intentionally is calming down the crowds. This is Jesus' way of saying, I know you're excited and singing praises to me, and rightfully so. And if you don't sing praises to me, the rocks are going to cry out. So it's rightful that you sing praises to me, but you need to calm down a little bit because I'm not going to do exactly what you think I'm going to do. I am coming to bring peace. And he illustrates that by coming to town on a donkey. Now, before we look at Zechariah 9.9, I want to ask this question. Uh, Did any other king ascend to the throne on a donkey? Hmm. That's an interesting question, you say. Turn to 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings 1, if you will. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings 1, beginning verse 33. King David is at the end of his life. He's ready to die. And, and you may recall that there was a little struggle between two sons as to which one of them uh, would be the heir to the throne, who would be the next king uh, when their father David died. 1 Kings 1, uh, we'll begin at verse 32. King David said, Call to me uh, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there Anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon! You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. So I think this is significant. Now, Israel would be very acquainted with their history And they would remember when Solomon, the son of David, came to the throne riding on a donkey. 
Jesus is referred to by theologians as the greater Solomon, the greater son of David. So here comes David's greater son, Jesus Christ, doing the same thing that Solomon did, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem for the same purpose, so that he can take his seat on David's throne. But only he's going to sit on David's throne forever. So that's very important. So now let's look at Zechariah. And it's probably easier to find backwards. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and just before Malachi is Zechariah. Zechariah 9 9. And if you want to on your own, you could you could read all of chapter nine if you wanted to get the context. Remember, when these Old Testament verses are quoted in the New Testament, it's not as though they said, that's a nice little phrase. Let's, let's take that verse and, and plug it in here. Uh, you, you have to understand the whole context from which that verse is coming. There's a whole context connected with that. And the Jews, of course, would understand that. Um, they would hear a verse and they would say, yeah, that's the verse about how God is going to deliver His people. And they would bring that whole context in when they heard the verse. But let's, let's look at three verses, though. Uh, beginning at verse 9, Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous in having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. And what's this King going to do as He comes to the throne on this donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from, mark it, sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. So here is Israel's king riding into town on a donkey, fulfilling the scripture. The king is coming. He's going to put an end to war. He's going to speak peace, not just to Israel, but to whom? To the nations or the world. And his rule is going to be from sea to sea from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And by the way, this is also a quote from Psalm 72, which also talks about the worldwide reign of God's anointed King. (laughs) So in a sense, we have Zechariah quoting the Psalms and then we have the New Testament quoting Zechariah. Um, Even in the Old Testament, they could quote earlier passages of Scripture. But notice, what is this king going to do? He's going to bring salvation. It's going to bring an end to war. It's going to bring peace. Worldwide rule. And this is all going to take place because he's going to die. Verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant. We celebrate that every single week at the Lord's Supper when Jesus takes the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So all this 
peace, all this reigning is going to take place because of the blood of the covenant, which is Jesus' blood that's given for us. Now, if we put this all together, I think the meaning of Palm Sunday is very clear. We have the mysterious symbol. We have the palm branches, which is a celebration of Jesus' victory. Only it's more a spiritual victory that will have implications, though, for kingdoms, for Rome, in this world. But it begins with sin and Satan. That mysterious saying, Hosanna, save now. Jesus did come to save His people. But first, He has to save them from their own sin. And then the mysterious Scripture, Zechariah 9.9, which shows that this king is a humble king. But he's going to have a worldwide reign and it's going to happen because he's going to lay down his life and then rise on the third day and then ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he will rule and reign over the nations. So when someone says to you, what is the significance of Palm Sunday? You can say, and there's many different ways to say it, the significance of Palm Sunday is that Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in, able, in order excuse me, to take His place on David's throne. And that will happen through the cross and through the resurrection. Palm Sunday is a celebration of Jesus coming to sit on David's throne if you want to make it real simple. Isn't this an awesome holiday? You see why this is worthy of celebration? Uh, this is our King and remembering what He has done for us. So the question is, do you recognize and celebrate what Jesus is doing? Do you see how He fulfills these Scriptures? And not everybody did. Not everybody celebrated this. And, and Luke's account, when everybody's all, all in an uproar and celebrating Hosanna and singing praises to Him, the religious leaders come and they say to Jesus, Tell your disciples to settle down a little bit. And that's where Jesus says, if they don't praise Me, even the rocks will cry out. I'm not going to stop them. But the religious leaders didn't recognize that He was the fulfillment. If they had, they would have joined the celebration. And again, do you recognize that Jesus is the King? One of the things that happened with Jesus riding into town is He divided all of humanity. You either recognized that He was the King or you didn't. You either loved Him or you hated Him. You either fell down and worshipped Him or you cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. But there was no neutrality. There's no middle camp. And today, there's no middle camp. You're either for Jesus or against Him. There's no middle road. You can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You can't say, he seems to be a good guy. I think he was a good teacher. That's not a conclusion that you can come to. This is what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. I've quoted this before, but it really makes the point. C.S. Lewis said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think he's right. Either Jesus was lunatic, deranged lunatic thinking that he was God in the flesh when he wasn't and he just needed to be locked up in a padded cell. Or he was a liar. He knew he wasn't the Son of God. He knew he wasn't the Savior, but he was trying to deceive everybody. Or indeed, he is Lord. He was God in the flesh. He knew he was God in the flesh. And he proclaimed that. So he's either a lunatic, a liar, and we could say it even stronger, the greatest deceiver who's ever lived. Think of how many millions upon millions are trusting in Jesus for their salvation. If he was a liar, he's the greatest deceiver who ever lived. He's not a good teacher. Unless he is the Lord, then he needs to be worshipped. So it's very clear there's only really two options. You fall down and worship him, or you spit in his face. And if it seems like people are neutral, that's because the claims of Christ haven't been pressed. But when you press them on who Jesus is, you will see rising within them whether or not they love Him or hate Him. Uh, For those of us who recognize Jesus, we need to thank God that we recognize who He is. That is God's grace to us. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. When Jesus was glorified, that's a reference to His crucifixion, and then His resurrection, and then finally His ascension into heaven where He's glorified in God's presence. And then He sent the Holy Spirit. And what did the Holy Spirit do? Opened their eyes, gave them understanding. We talked about this Wednesday at our, at our Bible study. Only the Holy Spirit can give us understanding of spiritual things. Because as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, they are spiritually discerned. The natural man can't understand these things. So if we understand these things, it's because God has given us insight and understanding. So we need to thank Him and praise Him for that gift. And of course, thank Him for this great means of salvation and recognize that Jesus is the King of Israel, the King of the world, and that right now He is ruling and reigning over the nations, which means we have hope in the midst of despair. Let me say that again. Christians are to be people of hope, even if we're in the midst of despair. I heard it again from a Christian a little over a week ago. The world's going down the tubes. I hate it when Christians say that. I want to say, maybe America is, is going down. The world is not going down. We need to have ultimate hope even if we have some questions about what America is going to look like for our children. Jesus is conquering. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is sovereign in control. Nothing happens by accident. What are we worried about? Seriously, what are we worried about? 
Why is the church of Jesus Christ not more optimistic? Our King is on the throne! Right now! He's ruling and reigning right now! He's in control. And history is moving in the direction God wants it to move. Which means we're moving in the direction. I don't know how long it's going to take place, but we're moving in the direction of His rule being from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. It's going to happen. It's a done deal. It's just a matter of time. It's interesting that 2,000 years later, we're in despair. And think of the perspective we get to see from our perspective how Christianity has grown for 2,000 years. Imagine Paul today coming back saying, wow, look what's happened since the first century to Christianity across the globe. This is amazing. And I repeat this over and over because I want to give you perspective. Look at how Christianity has grown for 2,000 years around the globe. It is awesome. We're not the ones who should be afraid. It's the enemies of Christ who should be afraid. And we'll close with this. Verse 19, John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. They knew they couldn't stop Him. They tried to stop Him again and again. They sent the police to arrest Him. You go, you go arrest Jesus. we got to stop Him. The police come back to the religious leaders. Well, did you arrest Him? No, we couldn't arrest Him. No one ever spoke like this man. Threw up their hand. Again and again, they, tried to, they couldn't kill Him. And then finally, you know what they conclude? We're gaining nothing. We can't stop Him. And now the world has gone after Him. They're speaking with exaggeration, but the world is going after Jesus. Because He's the Savior of the world. Because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That great verse from John 3.16 followed by that next great verse, John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And interesting how the religious leaders of the first century were saying we can't stop. They were afraid because they knew we can't stop Him. We can't stop Him. He's going to achieve the purpose that He has. So again, I say to you, we're the ones that are to be optimistic And it's the ones who are against Jesus who need to be afraid. He was not stopped in the first century. And of course, 2,000 years later, he's certainly not going to be stopped because they can't get at him. Seated on the throne as he is. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this Palm Sunday that we can set aside and reflect on King Jesus riding into Jerusalem, gentle and humble, on a donkey so that He could conquer sin and Satan and death on our behalf, so that we could live, so that we could have everlasting life, so that we could enter into His kingdom over which He is the ruling King. Father, may we joyfully continue to submit to His rule. And Father, I pray for Your people that You will give us optimism knowing that we serve a living and ruling and reigning King. And it's in the name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen.